Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We start today with our great debate. And here is the question today. Is Canada really a broken country? That's how conservative leader Pierre Polyev has described Canada. He says everything feels broken. Unaffordable housing, violent crime, drug addiction and overdoses. Interest rates up. Inflation, especially runaway food prices at the grocery store. It has sparked a fierce debate between Polyev and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. We've got a terrific debate for you on this, both sides of it here. First, let's have a listen here to Polyev and Trudeau. First, here's the Conservative leader. Everything feels broken. But let me tell you something, Justin. There is pain in the faces you do not see. There is suffering in the voices you do not hear. And there is distress and even chaos in the places you do not go. Okay, Justin Trudeau firing back here. Here's the Prime Minister. We're not going to let uh, a handful of angry people uh, interfere with the democratic processes that Canadians have always taken pride in. And the vast majority of Canadians aren't the types to throw up their hands and say, oh, it's all broken. Most Canadians roll up their sleeves and say, you know what? This is tough, but we're going to be there for each other. Okay, here we go now. We've got both sides of it for you. Carrie Lynn Finley, Conservative MP, South Surrey, White Rock. Very pleased to welcome her back. Carrie Lynn, thank you for coming on today. Sure. Hi, Mike. Hi, thanks for doing it. Also on the line, Randeep Sarai, Liberal MP in Surrey Centre. Randeep, thank you. Uh, always a pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, we got the two Surrey political heavyweights here on the show. Okay, Carrie Lynn Finley, let me go to you first. So when... Pierre Polyev says everything feels broken. You agree with that, right? Why do you feel that way? I absolutely agree with it, and I take issue with the Prime Minister, uh, Prime Minister saying a handful of angry people. There, a recent poll, 67% of Canadians agree with the statement that everything feels broken. Why? Because we have one and a half million Canadians using food banks in a month. We have people actually asking about MAID at food banks, not because they're sick, but because they can't afford to keep on living. We have students living in shelters because they can't afford rent. The average one-bedroom now rental in Vancouver is 2600 a month, and you need an extra grand if you want two bedrooms. So, you know, we've had years of lockdowns, and yet Canadians are locked down at airports. There's delays 
there's baggage problems. Transportation is is still a big issue for people. Passports that don't get issued. Immigration backlogs. We've got two and a half million people in the queue in immigration, and yet the Liberals say, "Oh, we're going to bring in five hundred thousand more people." Great, but what are you doing about the two and a half million in the queue? We've got violence up thirty two percent since they took office. Ninety two percent an increase in gang killings. And and what about the drug situation? After eight years of this Prime Minister under Trudeau, a 300% increase in drug overdose deaths. In B.C., 2,272 drug overdose deaths last okay. year alone. You know, these uh, our health system is hurting. Uh, finally, the Prime Minister was sitting down with the Premiers today after them asking and asking and asking to sit down and discuss this, and he's put a lot of conditions on them okay. getting some more federal transfers. Let's give your opponent an opportunity here. Liberal MP Randy Sarai, go ahead. Well, look, I mean, the, the Conservatives have decided that they want to look at this country as a half couple uh, approach every time they're gaslighting issues every time when you look at uh, Canada we are the first time ever that women have approached 85 percent uh, employment uh, uh, parity uh, uh, in the job workforce this is the highest it's ever been three million people have come out of poverty including over a million children that are now out of poverty levels yes we have work to do uh, due to the global pandemic due to supply chain issues due to the war in Ukraine that has caused inflation you know, we have to work on those, and it's coming down, and, and it's uh, going to be some tough times. But we have to look at where the metrics for Canada is. Canada is one of the top countries when it comes to transparency. It's one of the top countries when it comes to uh, health and peace and uh, welfare. Uh, we are, are a top country in, o- in the OECD where our growth rate is strong. Our unemployment rate is record low. Canadians are working hard uh, to help build this country, and it's showing. Everyone is coming out and work. These are the same people that were saying because you got CERB payments that people weren't working, that they were lazy, that they're not going back to work. Yet, in fact, the workforce participation is the highest it's ever been. The, the Canada Child Benefit and the child care plan that was uh, given, they voted against it every single time. And that's showing that actually women are now empowered to work and empowered okay. to earn more and get earning parity in this world. So okay. I think that Canada's on track. We have some challenges. We're going to work on those challenges, and those challenges aren't with Canada alone. There are challenges in Europe. They're the same challenges in the U.S. And I think if, as parliamentarians, we have a duty to work together rather than to gaslight and exacerbate issues uh, uh, and highlight the greatness of this country. Carrie Lynn. In this country. Carrie Lynn Finley, what do you say to that? Well, I take exception to the term gaslighting. It isn't gaslighting when you tell the truth. And these liberals, to say they're transparent is a joke. They are not transparent. They will not, they can't handle the truth, to use an old saying from a good movie. The Auditor General found billions, tens of billions of dollars of waste in the CERB program, which my colleague has brought up, and they denied it. They said the Auditor General, there was something wrong with her, that she had been influenced by the opposition parties. She's a parliamentary officer, and in her nonpartisan role, she said, you guys have sent CERB and wage benefits to 
people who have died, to fully paid civil servants, to people who were never eligible. And then we have the CRA commissioner saying it's not really worth the effort to try and collect back these billions of dollars. The Bank of Canada governor and people like, uh, you know, Mark Carney, who might be the head of the Liberal Party someday, they say the, the inflation is mostly homegrown. They talk about a war in Ukraine. Our trade with Ukraine is minuscule compared to other trading partners. You know, you just heard there was a news item on as I was listening to go on about the Portland Hotel hasn't had an elevator since September because of supply chain issues. Seriously, people are having who are disabled trying to get up multi levels of stairs in a in a hotel uh, you know residence because of supply chain issues. These liberals have a lot to answer for, and they cannot just say, "Oh, everything's really okay." Clearly, okay. the majority of Canadians agree they're struggling. They're having a hard time paying their bills. Mortgage rates have gone up eight times in the last year. This is crippling to people. Okay, uh, Randeep Sarai, speaking of how Canadians feel about this issue, uh, Carolyn Finley referenced this a little earlier, this new opinion poll that's come out says 67% of Canadians, so two-thirds of the country, agree with that statement that Canada feels broken. Just 25% disagreed with that statement. Does that not show that uh, the Prime Minister is on, on the wrong side of public opinion on this one? No, I think I think people look. People are facing challenges. There's no question about it. You know, it's very easy to say how much trade we have with Ukraine, and and that's causing it. Well, it also causes oil prices to jack up. It causes potashes to go up. When we sanction Russia, that's going to have an effect. When the world sanctions Russia, it's going to have an effect. When natural gas is shut off or blown apart, uh, the the pipeline from Russia to Europe, it's going to have a global effect. So either uh, some people in the Conservative Party don't understand world economics. uh, but it's also this gaslighting. I look at just right now what you heard. Uh, for some reason, the elevator in the Portland Hotel is the federal responsibility uh, and, and, and the fault of the federal government that parts for a Portland uh, Hotel elevator is uh, somehow our fault. This is what's happening is when, when the politicians are not being responsible and blaming things that have no relevance on the federal government or the federal government's uh, bureaucracy uh, and, and putting that blame on them. That's, so, of course, that's gaslighting. That's making people angry. Uh, okay. I think people need to be responsible and work hard on that. Uh, stuff that's happening on the downtown east side, this is a health problem. This is a health issue in the provincial government's jurisdictions. We're there to help and answer when the provincial government's called to us. And for that, we've been there, whether that was a Christy Clark provincial liberal government or whether that's a Morgan or now David Eby NDP government. The federal government has responded every time to the request the provincial government has asked for the downtown east side and will be there in the future as well. Okay. I want to thank both of you for a good discussion. We could keep probably do the whole show with both of you, but we'll just have to fit in the break here. And I want to thank you both, and I look forward to having you both on again. Randip Sarai, Liberal MP, Surrey Centre. Carrie Lynn Finley, their Conservative Conservative MP, South Surrey, White Rock. She's the Chief Opposition Whip in the House of Commons.
All right, let's talk about lengthening waits for health care now. The waits for surgery and diagnostic services getting longer in British Columbia. Emergency rooms backlogged or in some cases shutting down because of staff shortages. And now walk-in clinics. The waits to see a doctor at a walk-in clinic getting longer too. Let's discuss now with my guest, Teddy Wickham, Vice President of Medimap. Teddy, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Henry. Okay, first of all, can you tell the listeners there, what, what do you guys do there at Medimap? Yeah, for sure. So Medimap.ca is a website where patients can go to find local doctors in their area and see what their availability is. We originally started just working in the walk-in clinic space, um, wanted to build a free resource for patients where they could see the closest clinics to them and what the wait times were. We've since um, expanded to more than 70% of the walk-in clinics in Canada and actually have expanded beyond just working with walk-in clinics to also family doctors, um, mental health care professionals, dentists, eye doctors, sort of you name it. And our goal is really to build the most comprehensive um, resource of healthcare providers in Canada. Okay, this is a really handy service. A lot of people may be familiar with it, especially if you're looking to go to a clinic. You can you can go on the site and compare, like, you know, where, where can I get in the quickest, right? Yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so getting in quickly, though, is really not what we're seeing in British Columbia right now. Tell me what you're seeing on the ground here in BC right now in terms of wait times. Yeah, of course. So uh, the the news is unfortunate. Um, the wait times in BC last year, and or when we did the survey last year, which was 2021 data, BC had the worst wait times of any province in Canada. And we had hoped that that would change in 2022, but unfortunately the wait times only got worse. Um, so the average wait time across BC was 79 minutes in 2022. Um, and the worst wait time was North Vancouver, which was 160 minutes on average wait time. So, you know, sort of regardless of where you are in BC, you should expect to wait at least an hour, um, probably longer, to get in to see a walk-in clinic. Okay, and when you compare, boy, those are those are some long waits for sure. And how does that, you mentioned that if you, you compare that over recent years, it's getting worse year over year, right? The waits are getting longer. Yeah, that's right. So um, when we did this survey uh, back in 2019, pre-pandemic, um, the average wait in BC was 41 minutes, and then it's picked up to 58 minutes, and then this most recent year, 79 minutes. So the trend is, you know, going in the wrong direction. Um, certainly, BC has tried to do some things to change that. Um, you know, they announced it back in October that they were expanding the scope of uh, pharmacists to be able to provide care for 13 minor ailments. So I think that's, you know, one step in the right direction. Um, there's also to change the fee structure and the incentive model to get more doctors to go into primary care and family medicine and, and practice, you know, good medicine, um, which is another step in the right direction. But, you know, these things, unfortunately, won't, I don't think we'll, as patients, I don't think we'll feel the impact here for another year or so. Okay. So it sounds like wait times have nearly doubled here over that measurement period that you described there that's pretty brutal so let's talk a little bit about the rest of canada like when you compare british columbia to the rest of the country is british columbia longer waits um yes they, they are unfortunately ontario had the the lowest wait time at about 25 minutes which was below the national average of 37 minutes um and there's a lot of factors to sort of why that could be um you know ontario has a lot of um, walking clinics not just um, but it's not just about you know the sheer number of walking clinics that exist because Vancouver, Victoria, there are certainly a large number of walking clinics, but a lot of it is about um, you know what I'll sort of call urban planning and where those walking clinics exist. And when you look at the walking clinics um, on a map 
of Ontario, you see that they're pretty evenly distributed across the city. So regardless of what neighborhood you live in, you sort of have access to one, you know, sort of right outside um, your door. In Vancouver, that's not the case. There is a large number of walking clinics, but they tend to be sort of grouped together. So if you happen to be, you know, in one of those geographies that has a large number of walking clinics, that's great. You can probably get in, but in other geographies where there's maybe only one, a large portion of the population, you know, that's what drives up these wait times. Yeah. Speaking to Teddy Wickland, Vice President of MediMap, about the lengthening wait times to get into a walk-in clinic in British Columbia. You described some of the breakdowns of cities north Vancouver, the longest wait to see a doctor at a walk-in clinic. What are some of the other longer waits? Like which cities are at the the wrong end of the list here for the longest waits? Um, yeah, ac- across Canada. Um, in, in BC. We have wait times. Oh, in BC, yeah, Victoria is up there at uh, I think about 130 minutes. Yeah. Um, you know, North Vancouver is certainly the worst. Vancouver is also up there at about um, 71 minutes. Yeah. Um, so really, there there's not many. Um, you know, in a, at least looking at our data in all of the cities in BC, there isn't a city in BC that has a wait time of less than 30 minutes. So there is a wait across the board, which is unfortunate. Yeah, and we all know in British Columbia about the shortage of family doctors, and you talked a little bit about some of the efforts by government to alleviate that, but for people in B.C. who don't have a family doctor, which is more than a million people, is that why we're seeing these these waits? Because the walk-in clinics have become kind of a, a critical part of our healthcare system. If you're trying to see a doctor, a lot of people don't have much option, Maybe they can go online to tell us health or something, but man, oh man, those walk-in clinics are crucial and the the wait times are getting longer. Is it because people don't have a family doctor, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's a combination of things. Not having a family doctor, that's certainly a huge component of the overall supply um, issue that we're um, You know, what, what I would say is we've heard anecdotally, um, you know, from walk-in clinics uh, and our partners in that space that a lot of them coming out of the pandemic um, we're just so burnt out from the from those long days of just seeing very sick patients over and over and over again um, that a lot of them have decided to retire early, um, close their practice altogether, switch their walk-in clinic from a walk-in clinic to some other type of specialty for just a better quality of life, frankly, or better work-life balance. Um, and so that's, you know, on the supply side, one of the big issues. And then on the patient side, Obviously, a lot of people during the pandemic have relocated. So you have a lot of people who move to new geographies and they don't have a family doctor there or they don't know how to get a family doctor there. And so to your point, they rely on these walking clinics. But as walking clinics are closing their doors, that just continues to exacerbate the problem. Okay, so you've seen some walk-in clinics just shut down. Yep, yep, exactly. Um, we, so we, when we first started MediMap in 2015, we were just hyper-focused on working with walking clinics, and specifically, we started in Vancouver. And so that's where we have you know, most of our long-term partnerships, and we have good relationships with a lot of the doctors in that space. And yeah, we, you know, over the last two years coming out of the pandemic, that a lot of them you know, were telling us, hey, you know, I, I'm, I'm getting out of this practice because it's just too difficult. Wow. Okay. You also mentioned that the BC government is taking some steps here to try and improve this. You've got an expanded rent care options there at pharmacies. There's a new pay structure for doctors to try and encourage more family doctors to go into family medicine. Why would it take that long for the improvements to be seen on the ground? Like you mentioned, it might be another year before we see some improvements. How is it? Why is it taking that long? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's just the pace of change. You know, the announcement that was made back in October sounds great, but when we've talked to um, pharmacists, because we also support pharmacies on our platform, and we ask them about these, um, about their expanded scope and being able to treat patients for these 13 elements, a lot of the feedback we've gotten from them is we don't know when that's actually happening. We don't know exactly, um, you know, what certificates we need, what, what online classes we're supposed to take before we're able to actually practice that. Um, and this is, you know, now five months later. Um, so that's just my sense of how quickly the government's actually able to enact some of these things and actually get the sort of boots on the ground practicing with this expanded scope. Um, these things don't just happen overnight. There's actually a lot of operational challenges um, and operational things that have to come into play for them to actually start treating patients. Okay, so for people who are looking to access a walk-in clinic and they want to check out the data there at Medimap, where can they find that? Yeah, they can go to uh, medimap.ca um, and they you'll see right on the homepage a search bar. You can type in the specialty, uh, the type of doctor you're looking for. You can search for your symptoms, you know, if you have a cough, an illness, um, and then it'll just search for you right in your local geography and, and show you the results of what walk-in clinics or other types of providers exist and what their availability is. All right, Teddy, thank you for coming on today to talk about it. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about dog attacks now. Do we need stronger laws to protect people against attacks by dangerous dogs? This is one of those stories that keeps reinventing itself with brutal dog attacks in the news. Check out this story now. The B.C. Supreme Court case about the dinner party that went terribly wrong after one of the party guests was attacked by the host's dog. This is a way to quickly end a friendship right here. The couple went to the friend's house for dinner in Vancouver. They had a nice evening. On the way out, one of the guests went to pet the family dog, got bitten in the face for her trouble here. The bite led to a significant loss of blood. There was a wound on this poor woman's forehead, a gash on her cheekbone. The doctor who treated her said the muscle was exposed in this attack. That was the end of the friendship. It turned into a lawsuit instead. The dinner party guests sued their former friends for negligence. Now, the verdict just in, in this case, in B.C. Supreme Court, the judge ruling that the dog had not shown a previous propensity for being dangerous. Case dismissed. So the friendship has been dismissed there, too. Let's discuss it with my guest, Bill Thielman, president, Westar Communications. He's an advocate for dangerous dog laws. Hey, Bill, thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike, thanks for having me. Okay, first of all, this case, I mean, boy, this is, this is a sad story here. You go over to a friend's house for dinner, and that's the end of the friendship here after you get attacked by the family dog. Whoa. Yeah, well, Keith Walder and I wouldn't still be friends if it was Keith's dog that did that to me, I'll tell you. But it, it is quite serious because this woman was seriously injured. Uh, I mean, you don't, you know, this yeah. isn't just a nip on the ankle or, or even a snap or something. I mean, this is a serious injury and, and could have, um, I mean, clearly, if you get bitten in the face, it could be life-altering for a person. 
But what are you going to do, though, if the dog, according to the judge, the dog did not show any previous propensity to be dangerous, and this dog apparently kind of snapped? This was a rescue dog from Thailand. Now, sometimes those rescue dogs have been through some difficult, you know, abuse yeah. and neglect in the past, and they can be a bit unpredictable, I guess. Yeah. Well, this is the funny thing about the evidence. Of course, we, we none of us were in the courtroom and were, were uh, dependent on the reporting of the judgment, but it says the court heard that the the couple had purchased the dog and it had nipped people and other dogs leading it to going to obedience training oh. it also bit one of the women uh, one of the couple's fathers uh, when he was being passed a piece of cheese on toast now to me if you got a dog that that has bitten people and nipped people and is a rescue dog and we don't know what the breed is but we do know in Thailand <clears throat> one of the uh, one of the breeds that's most common is called the ridgeback and it is a it is a very very <laughs> big, powerful, and, you know, kind of a guard dog type thing. Uh, I don't know if, the, if it's uh, directly related to pit bull, but it's it's in the category of dogs like Rottweilers, pit, pit bulls, and uh, others that are, you know, potentially quite dangerous to if they decide to attack. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, they took it to dog obedience training. Well, that's great. But I think if you've got a dog that has a, you know, a history of biting people and, and others, and uh, including even a family member, uh, I don't know how much training you can do or you, you can have, you know, you know, the whole uh, no bad dogs, bad owners sort of thing. But really, yeah. uh, without I, I wouldn't I mean, to me as a homeowner, uh, if I had people over in that dog, I'd say I'm going to keep the dog in the bedroom or I'm going to put a muzzle on it or something just to be safe. Yeah. You just don't know. The Vancouver Sun reported on the case that this was a mixed breed rescue dog from Thailand and it only had three legs. So this was a three legged dog. Yeah. That didn't prevent the dog here from doing some serious damage to this dinner guest's face. No, well, when you oh. when you lean in, I mean, everybody knows, and and it scares you sometimes. When you see little kids doing this. You lean into a dog, a stranger, a stranger's dog. Once you lean into pet it or something, you're yeah. you're like you're a, a millisecond away from a potential attack. And yeah, I mean, any, um, any dog, any dog can bite. Now, how, let's talk about pit bulls here now, because this is something that you've advocated for on for a long time. Do we need some stronger breed specific laws rules? especially when it comes to pit bulls. Now, how about this story? This this is a wild one here yeah, now. Yeah. In in Missouri, this happened in December. Two pit bulls get into a school playground and and just go crazy. They start attacking kids, teachers, 21 people injured. Can you imagine that? This is mayhem on the school yeah, playground. Exactly. That's exactly what it Unreal. is. Unreal. Like, 21 no, people. A, a wild story that um, <clears throat> People Magazine published, in, and I'm sure others, in uh, in late December. And if you can imagine as a, a parent, you're a parent, I'm a parent, uh, you have your kids in a school ground playing in the playground, and two pit bulls zoom in, and 18 students and three teachers. Oh, my. This is just, uh, I mean, it sounds like kind of a Last of Us movie or TV (laughs) horror, uh, you know, apocalypse story. Like, the kids, one afternoon, they're out playing in the playground, and all of a sudden, they're beset upon by wild dogs, and fortunately, no one was killed, but... These are serious injuries, and these are grade five and six students. They're not little tiny kids. If oh. they been smaller, I think they would have been dead. Okay, that's um, ho- that's horrific. Let's have a listen to this report here on this story, Bill. This is from KY3 News in Missouri. Have a listen to this. 
I saw teachers smacking the dogs with clipboards, kicking them, and just pulling them off of this one kid that was getting attacked by both of them. Animal Control says two pit bulls ran onto the playground at Willard Intermediate South during recess on Tuesday. The dogs attacked 18 students and three teachers who suffered bites, bruises, and scratches. There's a pregnant teacher that came in defense of our children, putting herself in harm's way. Okay, sounds like some of the teachers acted with a very courageous fashion here to save these kids. Bill, your thoughts? Well, you know, Mike, I've been on your show uh, and other shows many times talking about this. Uh, we just uh, we see this. It periodically happens here in British Columbia and Canada. But uh, we know across the world, and particularly the United States, pit bull attacks are common, uh, common, and they usually result in deaths. Uh, many of them result in deaths. There's been dozens of deaths a year from pit bull attacks, and you know we've seen it. Uh, we've seen it over and over. We just had uh, another sad case in uh, East Baton Rouge. Seven-year-old girl mauled to death by a roaming pit bull while playing outside a relative's home. I mean, the other thing about these cases, it just those two last two are scary. This isn't um, even somebody who goes and you know seeks a stick at a pit bull or something in the, in its own yard or or trespasses or something like this. These are dogs roaming and and going out and, and attacking and in one case killing people. So uh, I think it's uh, you know I've argued before that there should be dangerous dog legislation that's much stronger. I've argued before that pit bull ba- breeds should be banned because of their propensity for not just for violence but the severity of the violent attacks mm-hmm. that they they undertake. And it's uh, you know I I've said it also before. I'll say it again. Does it take a child to get killed here before anyone will actually act upon and do anything and um, the sad answer seems to be yes okay well you of course you will get an argument on this oh, yeah. from people who say that the, this particular breed of dog a pit bull it gets a, an unfair bad rap let's listen to caesar milan here the famous dog whisperer and he believes that pit bulls are unfairly maligned and he said this has happened over time that certain specific breeds get a bad reputation he says it's not fair here he is in the 70s the breed that people were afraid of were dobermans right and the in the uh, 80s 90s you know the uh, rottweiler and the 2000 is the pitbull so what we're seeing here is whenever a breed comes in, into fashion uh, and we don't control the power we blame them yeah you see it? So in the 70s, it was a Doberman. Okay, we couldn't control them. Let's wipe them off. Right. Right? And let's create myth that when they become five years of age, they're going to turn into human. Okay, he says that some of these dogs get a bad reputation and myths be, uh, emerge around them. What do you say to that argument? Like, this gets back to something you touched on briefly earlier, that it's not the, it's not the dog, it's the dog owner that should be held accountable. Well, Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> yes, it's true that um, a bad owner will almost guarantee a bad result. But uh, that said, there are stories. We had one here, you might remember, a few years ago in, in B.C. where a uh, family pet pit bull attacked a, a three- or, or six-month-old baby uh, in, the own, in its own home. So you, you can't really say... Uh, that a dog like that, it was bad ownership or anything that was, it was in a family situation, etc. It just snapped for some reason we don't know. Um, you know, last year, Mike, there were 54 dog fatalities in, in 2022. 54. So that's a where? lot of people. In, and, and majority it, where of is that? Pit, and majority of them were pit bulls again. Um, is that in the bases in the United States? You, you, the toughest characters on, on, on the surface of the United States, the, the military, uh, with guns, are not allowed to own pit bulls because they're too dangerous. Uh, Winnipeg's banned them. Um, 
other jurisdictions have banned them because there's just there was just repeatedly too many attacks. So um, I think the case is in, and and not, notwithstanding uh, uh, what Caesar said, there the uh, Rottweilers and and uh, other dogs um, can also be uh, Dobermans can also be fatal people. But if you look at the stats year after year, uh, and there's an organization uh, dogbites.org website that shows. The pit bulls are just the overwhelming majority again and again. It's because they have very powerful jaws and they're trained um, and bred for, for generations okay. to be a fighting dog. Talking pit bulls with Bill Thielman. We got tons of phone calls. Marie in Surrey. Hi, Marie. Go ahead. Hi. Yeah, you know, all these people phone in. They're always coming down on the dogs. Dogs don't train themselves to be vicious. People do. They keep them on short leashes. They don't feed them. If people would open their eyes, you know, when you're starving a dog, they always go really skinny in the hind legs, and the owner never lets you touch them. They totally don't even interact with other dogs. So, of so, course, they're going to be vicious. So I you mean, would say I've do not... By, I've walked by people before that yeah. are in little places like Tim Hortons down here in Surrey on King George Highway, yeah. and they keep dogs locked in cars on hot days. Yeah. People would go vicious. So, so, there, so therefore, you would say do not ban the breed. Do not ban the breed okay. at all. No, ban okay. the people. Ban the people. Bill, what do you say to that? Well, there's a, certainly a very strong argument to be made that Marie has said there, and I agree, I've had the same observations, where there are people using pit bulls and other dogs as weapons, basically. They're training it. They're keeping it uh, extremely aggressive. And yeah, you, you might, you've probably walked by somebody who's got a choker chain on a pit bull and thought, wow, I sure hope that person can control the dog if it decides to go after me. And you think probably not. Uh, I think there should be a, a significant licensing situation, just as we have with firearms. If you, if you want to own a dog that's determined to be extremely dangerous, then you'd have to pass a lot of tests and be monitored, etc., as, as firearms okay. owners are. Because, But I don't think that's going to solve the problem because we've got family attacks. We've got people who have their, their, their pit bull uh, puppy or pit bull uh, dog it's been with the family and all of a sudden it just attacks a kid for un yeah. unknown reasons let's go to margaret in port coquitlam hi margaret go ahead hi uh yes uh i used to be a um first aid attendant for canada post i got called oh. out to a dog bite uh by a girl letter carrier and uh it happened to be a pit bull um it was an older couple that owned this pit bull and they said he was very friendly which i'm sure he was but I got there, and a normal dog, you get puncture marks, and you'd have to have a tetanus shot. This one, I looked, and there was a whole piece of the leg missing out of the calf of back of her leg. Yeah. Of course, you couldn't find that piece anywhere. I'm sure the dog ate it, but she oh. had to get, go away in an ambulance. But the, the point is, their jaws are so strong. They can be friendly, but they're protecting their territory. And their jaws are just so strong. It's not like a normal dog. So I believe they should be totally banned because they're just, their bites are so dangerous. Thank you, Margaret, for the call. Let's try and squeeze in as many as we can here. Bill, get a ton of calls here. Kathy in Maple Ridge. Hi, Kathy. Go ahead. What do you think? Hi. I, I have a couple points I'd like to make. First, I think part of the problem is the media. Put case in point, we have this story today that had nothing to do with the pit bull. And it has turned into this pit bull ban conversation. So uh, that, that is problematic. The other uh, point that I want to make is every single animal welfare organization 
uh, in North America, including my own, uh, do not support breed bands because they, they just don't work. And the website that was referenced, dogbites.org, has yep. been demonstrated time and time again to be completely inaccurate, completely biased, and just the, the founder of that organization has one purpose, and that's to eliminate pit bulls. It is not uh, uh, based in any sort of science and research. And so I think we need cooler heads to prevail. And when we start, when we're talking about dogs, um, why are we talking about pit bulls today? This wasn't a pit bull attack, but it <coughs> always turns into the conversation about pit bulls, and it is completely unfair, and it is fear-mongering. Thank you, Kathy, for the call. Well, we're talking dangerous dogs. This is the dangerous dog story, the, attack, the dog attack story that's in the news. Bill, we got 30 sure, seconds sure, here. Yeah. Go well, ahead. Well, hey, we don't know the breed of the dog in the, in the attack, but we do know that pit bulls are responsible for far more fatal and serious attacks, as the uh, first aid person to the Canada Post uh, just mentioned. Uh, Mike, uh, they can criticize dogbites.org, but dogsbite.org, but they document with media reports, links to the media reports, photos from the media. They do a very good job, and they found over 15 years from 2005 to 2019, 521 Americans killed by dog bite attacks, 66% pit bulls, 66%. Bill, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980-CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.